The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, we ask, can it get any stranger? Absolutely. And we battle across time. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It is a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshari Rod. This week, Wynn Spencer sat down with DJ Butler to discuss the long-awaited new entry in the Tinker series, Harbinger. Fans new and old will want to take a listen to Spencer's behind-the-scenes discussion of this popular series. But first, the news. Trade paperbacks are in. Let's take a look. First up, Jane Linscold's Overwear series continues with Aurora Borealis Bridge. When Peg, Meg, and Teg were first summoned over where vast and varied life experience, along with wide reading choices, helped them adjust to a world where they were the only humans, magic was real, ships could fly, and reincarnation was a confirmed fact. In the company of the Inquisitors, Zirak, Grunwald, and Varese, the three newly appointed mentors rediscovered the Library of the Sapphire Wind, and within it, revelations that transformed the young people's past into a vast tangle of lies and half-truths. But there are still questions to be answered. Before they are done, Meg, the retired librarian, Teg, the archaeologist turned mage, and the multi-talented, ever-surprising Peg will deal with kidnappings, betrayal, arcane artifacts, romantic intrigues, and the inescapable reality that past lives cast long shadows. Together, the three mentors and their young allies will uncover the startling truth about what lies on the other side of the Aurora Borealis Bridge, a truth that holds the secret of overwear and that will change all their lives forever. Next, we battle across strange eons in Time Troopers, edited by Hank Davis and Christopher Rocchio. Once, military actions were entirely two-dimensional, confined to the surface of land and sea, but then submarines and aircraft added a third dimension, vastly extended by spaceflight. Now, consider that if time travel is possible, the fourth dimension of time opens up new possibilities for combat, necessitating new defenses, new strategies, and tactics. A battle that was once decisively won might be refought, or a narrow victory might be subtly tilted to the other side. Never mind the history books, they are only works in progress. It's zero hour in whatever time stream, so grab your time appropriate weapon, be it sword or ray blaster, buckle on your general issue time porter belt and follow the time troopers into action across strange eons. Stories of time travel military science fiction by an all-star general staff, including Robert Silverberg, Paul Anderson, Fritz Leiber, John C. Wright, H. Beam Piper, and more. 
That's Aurora Borealis Bridge by Jane Linskold and Time Troopers, edited by Hank Davis and Christopher Rocchio, out now in trade paperback. And be sure to tune into the podcast as we will be discussing both of these entries in future episodes. This month marks the long-awaited return of Tinker in Harbinger. To celebrate, we're offering discounts on all Win Spencer backlist titles. From past entries in the Elf Home series to standalone novels, there's something for everyone. From now until the end of April, get $1 off all Win Spencer ebook backlist titles. And don't forget to pick up the latest entry in the Elf Home series, Harbinger, while you're at it. Sale ends April 30th, 2022, and these discounts are good wherever Bain ebooks are sold. And that's it for the news. Hi, this is uh, DJ Dave Butler. Uh, I'm here with Wen Spencer to talk about her new novel, Harbinger. It is out now in hardcover and in all your favorite ebook formats, always DRM free when you buy them from uh, Bain.com, of course. Uh, Wen Spencer is an internationally best selling American science fiction and fantasy writer born in Evans City, Pennsylvania. She attended the University of Pittsburgh gaining a degree in information science and has been active in science fiction fandom. Her first novel, Alien Taste, was published in 2001 and won the Compton Crook Award. She developed the characters in that novel into a four book arc, the Ukiah, Oregon series. In 2003, she started the Elf Home series with Tinker, which won a Sapphire Award. Harbinger is book five in the Elf Home series. Uh, in that same year, she was awarded the John W. Campbell Award for best new writer. She's written 13 novels, including four standalone novels, A Brother's Price, Endless Blue, Eight Million Gods, and The Black Wolves of Boston, as well as numerous short stories. Several of her novels, including Alien Taste, Tinker, and A Brother's Price, have been translated and sold internationally in Europe, Japan, and Russia. Wen, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dave. I'm glad to be here. Wonderful. We're thrilled to have you. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about really enjoyed Harbinger. What a fun, uh, what a fun story. There's so much, uh, adventure, but also charm, uh, in, in the setting and the characters. Um, I want to, I want to ask questions that where we don't presume that anyone listening has already read the first book and hopefully they'll go out and, and, and buy them and read them, uh, or check them out from a library. We like that too. Um, I think maybe the sort of um, the sort of to start at big questions, maybe you could tell us about the setting, at least by book five, there's a setting that has three um, interconnected universes, or at least worlds. I don't know if we know the whole universe. We know the three interconnected worlds. The three worlds. So, so tell us about that. Well, the basic premise is that there are multiple universes that are at a certain point identical to one another. And that several years ago, um, the Chinese started up a space gate, uh, the jump ships to another um, universe, another star, and it dropped Pittsburgh off earth and onto the planet of the elves, which is called Elf Home. And 
brand new planet, just like Earth, um, has indigenous uh, species, but uh, Earth decided that when it turns the gate off, Pittsburgh comes back, turns it on, Pittsburgh goes to Elf home. Hey, this is the perfect uh, interdimensional trading process. Um, and so they started up this cycle that once a month, Pittsburgh came and went um, back to Earth and then to Elf home. Uh, this went on for several years until um, it turns out there's a third universe. And this one has indigenous species, which are called Oni, and that the Oni also have a small gateway opening up in the Sea of China. And they were actually behind the Chinese making the gate. And their whole goal is to take over Elf home. So this interdimensional war breaks out uh, in Pittsburgh and book five is kind of the war coming to the head. Yeah. So, uh, so now is it, is it, is it a, uh, is it a three-way switch where once a month, uh, Pittsburgh goes to Elf home, a piece of Elf home goes to, uh, it's Onihida, right? Is the, the no, it's a, or it's two, two bilateral. It's, yeah. Part of Earth goes to Onihida and part of Earth goes to Elf home. Yep. Earth stays in the middle. So the, the Oni didn't have a direct passage to Elf home. And that's basically the conflict of the first book is they realize that the person who created the gate um, has a genius daughter who has all his notes. And um, that is my main character, Tinker. Tinker, yeah. And um, naturally, she ends up in the middle of the war. Yeah. Well, let's let's. I want to talk about Tinker. Let's come back to her uh, uh, in in a minute. Mm -hmm. So, um, so the shutdown. So there's this vocabulary around shutdown and startup. And shutdown is uh, and and the, the story happens. Book five, at least, happens basically entirely around Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, shutdown is the period of time during which Pittsburgh is in elf home, is that right? And then startup is when it reconnects to ordinary earth? No, shutdown, they go back to earth. Oh, okay. Startup, they go to elf home. Okay. Uh, so there's, yeah, there's discussion of how some of the fun details include like how mail works and mails gathered in, uh, uh, well, it ends up being an important plot point. Um, yeah. They people keep on doing them. Why don't you come up with a Wikipedia of this stuff? And I'm like, because every single word is important because sooner or later I'm going to go, oh yeah, I mentioned that one little detail back in book one and I'm now going to bring it forward. And uh, so I spend a lot of time flipping through my books going, what did I say? <laughs> uh yeah yep i understand that um so okay so now you say uh you say hey the chinese recently uh, uh had this space gate the series is set in a in a near future in the near future now back in 2003 it was actually 30 years in the future yeah. uh, we're really creeping up fast <laughs> it will be alternate history very soon 
Yes, the yeah. twins are born already. Yeah. So uh, that's right. That's right. They are because uh, they're nine in, yeah. in the book. So um, it's, it's there, there's an interesting kind of aesthetic, uh, and and there are um, sort of various pieces to it, right? Uh, there are there are the elves, and that's that's part of the aesthetic. The Oni, uh, and your biography, your biography talks about uh, on your website talks about your interest in Japanese folklore, and um, my memory from a long time ago when I read this stuff is that there are there is a Japanese folklore creature called Oni. Am I remembering that yeah. right? Yeah, um, they're redheaded giants that live in the mountains and. They're kind of ogres, and they often have horns and such. Uh, and for the most part, they're considered evil. But there's the Japanese has a lot of shading to their mythology, um, and uh, it, it's been fluctuating for me as to where various species stand in the good and evil spectrum. Because yeah. I tend to do a lot of character uh redemption arcs yeah and, and we've got some of that going on in this book and there are some uh well so we'll come back and talk about the oni more in detail in in a minute um it's that struck me as being a very japanese influence the other piece that the tengu i think are are a piece out of japanese folklore remembering that right and these are basically and I'll ask you in a minute about their origin, but but as they appear in the story, they're winged people who also, I, th I think, human size. Uh, yeah, uh, they originally were human. And right. uh, the masters, the greater blood of Oni, was mad at them. So they had tried to wipe them out on a battlefield. When that didn't work, they merged them with crow feeding on the dead. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's not, and, and some, some, there's at least uh, one of the Tengu characters who was fairly recently made Tengu, right? So that's not a one-time yeah. event. That's a thing that can happen from time to time. Yeah, the, um, the major bad guys are um, proficient in using magic to re-engineer the bio, um, they call it bioengineering. Um, people and yeah. animals. So they can turn animals into monsters or they can change the basic physiology of humans. Um, so uh, there is some changing of species that goes on during the course of the book. Yeah. And this is expressed both in terms of magic being spells, but also in terms of DNA, which kind of gets back to that aesthetic point. Mm -hmm. There's uh, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the sort of 1990s tabletop role-playing role game uh, Shadowrun, no. um, but it's got a um, it's got a sort of a Shadowrun feel. So, right, so you're not you're not a Shadowrun gamer, but, no, but I've done D and D in a couple other games, but I, I haven't hit Shadowrun. Yeah. Uh, um, there's no need to go into detail about Shadowrun, but it's an interesting combination. On the one hand, fantasy, elves, um, but also you've got something like a cyberpunk setting, 
right? It's yeah. near future. There are, now we don't see people, you know, the kind of classic tropes of pl plugging their heads in. Um, and the internet doesn't play that kind of a role that it would like in William Gibson's stuff. Yeah, I, I like, have self-driving cars and robotic uh, dogs and uh, what bikes. luggage mules, which are basically you, instead of pulling your luggage, it follows along behind you and um, can go up and down stairs and through sand and everything. And it, it's just taking the big dogs that they have in Boston and making it um, more consumer friendly. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, a, uh, there's some unborn children. There's a group of four unborn children who, um, so this is kind of on that point of this, is, this whole thing is this you know, constant meshing of magic and, and yeah. you know, imaginative science and imaginative engineering. These four unborn children who, because of their magical powers, manifest as little robot mice on little hover bikes that appear to you know, uh, uh, some characters and, um, uh, but they're not just mice, they're robot mice. Uh, it's one of those things where it just keeps on building and building and building. And right. yeah, when you're five books in, you've got this very rich tapestry. And yeah. the interesting note was Facebook brought up a post yesterday yeah. from 2014, which basically was the dream I had mm. where I dreamed Tinker had unborn siblings oh. and I realized oh yeah that's right because I had talked to somebody about in, um, in vitro IVF. fertilization and they talked about the fact that these embryos that are created during in virtue fertilization stays um, viable for years and the woman I was talking to had had twins and decided that she didn't want any more kids so she donated her embryos 10 years after her twins were born to another family that wanted to have children and she now knows that her kids have step um, twin and, and siblings right. are being raised by somebody else and might not know they exist Right, biological full siblings, right? Just yeah, biological. The different siblings. birth mother. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and after that conversation, yesterday, in 2014, I yeah. woke up and went, <laughs> "Oh!" And that's where the whole Wood Sprites book came, um, yeah. which is in a weird chronological order because it actually starts before the first book and then runs to the last book. Um, but I had a lot of fun with that and just yeah, yeah. expanded on everything. Well, well, let's, let's talk some more about the Oni since we were kind of on, on that subject. So their homeland, home world is Oni Haida. There, there are divisions among the elves and there are, there are divisions among the Oni, right? We get, we have greater bloods who in this book, we, uh, I'm not sure if we, we knew this before, but we we start to learn about some of their origin and connections with elf kind. Yeah, well, uh, I found out in Elf Home hmm. how they're all connected. Um, and this is where you start dancing around spoilers. 
<laughs> um, is the fact that um, basically the elves had a society where they were fairy tribes of people and one of the tribes became proficient in the bioengineering magic and created um, beast of war and basically enslaved all the other elves on the world. And one of the things, there's actually a fourth world that you keep on missing. Oh. There's a race of dragons. Oh yes. Who are almost godlike. And some of them had come to elf home exploring and they got captured by the master race of elves and started experimenting on them. And basically they're trying to steal the genetic code of the dragons to make themselves godlike. And during this period, um, they discovered Earth and they discovered Onehida and they were actually traveling to all these different planets. And then they accidentally created slaves with godlike powers who then rebelled. And the rebellion went on and they thought they got rid of all their masters and they set up four clans, uh, the wind clan, the stone clan, the fire clan and the water clan. These are elves, we're talking about the four clans of the, the elves. elves. Yeah. But meanwhile, the um, master race, the skin clan had escaped to Onihaina and some of them were untrapped on earth. So the three, and there was a small amount on elf home and the three small pockets started to work out a plan to link all the worlds back together again and then take over elf home because not all the worlds are the same. Um, I have set up that magic is kind of waveform and mm -hmm. it manifests in, on the planets in a different manner. And earth does not have any significant amounts of magic. So that's why we never really got into it. Elf home is rich and the dragon world is super rich. But Odihida wasn't that, it wasn't as bad as earth, but it still wasn't as good as elf home. And that's why there was this push to take over elf home. And if they succeed at elf home, they'll head for the dragon world. Yeah. So, uh, so this, this kind of experimentation, right? The Oni continue doing it to themselves, to each other, right? Am I reading this right? So we get- Well, kind of. Um, the whole greater, greater Oni, lesser owner, true bloods are, the greater bloods are actually the elves mm. um, who kind of hiding out in plain sight. Mm. And then the true bloods are the Oni that haven't been genetically manipulated and then the lesser bloods are the ones that have been manipulated to the point where they're no longer the same sentient level. Mm, they're monstrous. The monstrous ones. And um, what the invaders have been doing over time is um, getting true bloods over, but then doing the manipulation because the monstrous ones breed faster. And you know, come to maturity faster, and um, or 
good, um, basically cannon fodder. And they've been building up cannon fodder and hiding them deep in the forest around Pittsburgh. Hmm. Uh, on, on Earth, as opposed on, to the Pittsburgh location in Elf Home. On Elf Home. Oh, on Elf Home, okay. Uh, Pittsburgh has landed, um, the elves haven't explored what is the North American continent um, much prior to Pittsburgh arriving. So when Pittsburgh arrives, it's surrounded by virgin forest for hundreds of miles. And um, the Oni have taken advantage of that. Yeah. Now, there are also half Oni characters, and I take it that they're half Oni and half, uh, is it, this is not the result of genetic manipulation, it's they actually just have parents of different species. Yeah. Um, to get from one side of Earth to the other side of Earth, um, the Oni were using Chinese people. Uh, some of them were Chinese people, Chinese, um, nationality and some of them were American Chinese who had connections with families still in China and they would basically would come in and capture them and then hold the people as hostage and they kind of the the head of the half Oni um, is Tommy Chang mm -hmm. and he had a, a great uncle living in Pittsburgh running a restaurant and the Oni brought in his mother and three of her mother, three of his aunts, and basically set them up as a brothel for the officers of the Oni. Hmm. Um, so they ended up having half Oni children. Um, and the half Oni are not happy with their Oni fathers. Yeah. Um, so in the second book, they rebelled against um, the Oni. Um, the first book was one point of view. The second book was two point of views. The third book was three point of views. Um, <laughs> Harbinger is nine point of views. I was going to say it didn't count, but it was more than three. <laughs> yes, it was nine. And um, that's why it's fairly long. Yeah. Uh, but delightful. Um, Thank you. So, so, so Tommy. Okay, so let's talk about him. So he's uh, he's half Oni. Um, he has uh, ears like a cat, right? Yes. Which he sometimes hides by. He's got a headband that has human prosthetic tips. So he'll put that on and yeah. Um, um, basically, um, he also has the ability to play with people's minds so that they can see things that aren't there. So. What he tends to do is avoid crowds and then he goes up to somebody and convinces them when they're talking to him that he looks slightly different than he really does. Yeah. Um, but he could also erase his existence completely from the person's mind so he can stand beside them and not they not realize he's there. Um, and that's a magical gift he got off his father who was a lesser Oni. But the 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 dilution of that gift because he's because he's a he's a half blood right is mm -hmm. that he can affect uh, i think basically one one target at a time whereas basically. his father would have been able to maybe yeah. be invisible to a whole crowd or cause yeah. a crowd to forget him so tommy has to be real careful and, and sort of you know mm -hmm. 
strategic about, you know, I can cross here because I can make that one guy not see me while the other guy's looking the other way or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and so Tommy's interesting. So he's, uh, you know, the Pittsburgh we see, and I, I should say, I, I don't know Pittsburgh. I, I mean, I've been through it, right? But I don't know Pittsburgh. Yeah. Um, but this is a pretty gritty Pittsburgh. It's, it's uh, you know, uh, uh, we see, we see kind of, you know, industrial yards and uh, some, you know, uh, some kind of ruined parts. Uh, Tommy's, Tommy's part of the underworld. He's, he's a pimp, right? Uh, yeah. And uh, his, uh, you, you mentioned, you know, redemption arcs. Uh, Tommy's basic story uh, is that uh, is that that a, a bunch of prostitutes? These are men and also women, right? Uh, uh, have gone missing, and um, now now these they're they're called the undefended, right? Am I? Yeah. And what what is the what makes them undefended? Well, all the prostitutes that Tommy takes care of are actually of the Chinese women who were slaved by the Odi. So he's basically taking care of cousins or people that he feels like are his cousins. And it's basically, they can't get another job. And this is a way to make money so they don't starve to death. So he's, he's a pimp only in that if anybody messes with them, they know they have to deal with Tommy and Tommy has a reputation of being really badass. You don't mess with Tommy. Um, so he defends his stable of prostitutes. Well, there's also these people, um, the only have made it very easy to get in and out of Pittsburgh, even though you have borders and guard patrols and things like that. So you get people that come in and if they're caught, they get taken back out. So they don't want to be caught, but because they don't have paperwork or anything like that, there's a limited number of jobs that they can have. So a good number of them turn to prostitution, but they don't want to do the whole, I don't want to pimp. Right. Um, so they don't have anybody protecting them. And anybody who deals with them knows that they don't have family here. They might not have friends here. Um, there's nobody going to notice that they're going to fall between the cracks. So um, everybody basically working the streets knows that person is undefended. So that was um, basically they're not from or elf home. They're not part of the whole um, system, basically. Yeah. Um... And uh, and when some of them go missing, Tommy takes it on himself because uh, he is he is kind of this underworld figure, but he uh, so, but something in him, you know, he's he's got a he's got a kind of a nobility or a kind of I'm gonna, you know, someone's got to go save those people. Yeah. Um, like taking somebody who has the moral morals of you know King Arthur's court, um, Percival, and then basically putting them through the ringer as a young child where, you know, yeah, he's still really noble, but he has been dragged through the gutter. And so if there was any illegal thing going on in Pittsburgh, he was 
he was part of it. He ran numbers. Um, he was a, you know, a bookie. He did yeah. cockfighting. Um, he also did raves. Yeah. Um, basically, any kind of not really on the books, carefully policed activity, he was involved with it. Yeah. Uh, and he has the people because there's hundreds of half Oni scattered through the city and they all look to him to leadership because his father was the leader of the Oni warriors. So there's this, he's also the oldest. So he's the oldest, his family was fairly stable because they had the restaurant and then his father was a commander. So all those things kind of fed into him um, ending up being the leader. Yeah. Um, I guess this is not a question, but just a comment. But it's it's impressive to me just how uh, how rich the tapestry is you've created here, where we've got sort of everything from you know uh, migratory workers uh, to uh, you know the sexual dynamics of conquest uh, kind of being explored. Uh, just in this piece of the of the setting. So again, not a question, but but it's it's uh, very thought provoking. Um, but I should ask you questions. You're here to answer questions. So so uh, so you told us there's the um, the so-called skin skin elves, right? And we yeah, skin clan the skin clan. Sorry, and we see one of them, uh, yeah. and and that's an elf who's strikingly different. And we can talk about that, but also the the four clans. Um, what what what's the difference among them? Is it is it purely social? Uh, they have different magic. Um, what does it mean to be in an elf clan? Well, the skin clan had conquered everything, basically Africa, India, Asia, and Europe, um, and they were scattered widely and. They had different tastes. And you basically had provincial rulers who would tailor um, their slaves to their taste. Mm -hmm. And when the war's rebellion broke out, um, basically they grouped together um, this one up in the north who's mastered like tall, dark haired people. Um, they become the wind clan and the people in Europe who were all redheads um, became the fire clan. And there were some tribal divisions in magic because where they were located also meant what magic became easier for them to acquire way back before they got enslaved. And there was a whole underground slave movement where they um, originally had shamans and tribal leaders and magic and religions. And um, the skin clan was doing something along the lines of what China had done back in the warring states where they would, you know, gather up all the books and burn them and kill off the philosophers, um, basically in order to try to change everything to what they wanted. And it was, you know, a certain genetic traits, certain mind traits. Um, and then in the rebellion, they of course came up with various society things where um, if I obey you, you have to protect me kind of mindset. 
Uh, and then this is kind of after the rebellion, they had clan wars. And at one point, some of the dragon blood said, we're gonna wipe away, wipe ourselves out here. We have a very low fertility and we're killing each other at massive rates. We've got to stop this. And they basically said, okay, this part of our society works, so we'll keep that. This doesn't work, we're throwing it out. That's forbidden now. This works, we're keeping that. Um, so um, as the elves stand now, because they were all enslaved and then gone through this, this is what our society is going to be. They're kind of homogenous, but the clans are also, you know, ra racial traits. Some of them are short and dark, some of them are tall, and, mm. um, and they have different magic sets. Yeah. And each magic set is slightly different. Now the that uh, that uh, patron and protected relationship that's that's being beholden, right? That's the mm -hmm. beholden. Yep. Um. Okay. Very good. Now I have this is a little bit of a side question. And and uh, I'm springing this on you. It's okay to say. It's okay. Whatever you say is okay. Uh, what does elf fusion music sound like? Oh, I could find you the samples of it. Um, I'm into a lot of different music and there's a lot of music out there where they'll take very tribal things like the, um, do you know the throat singing from oh, yeah. Tibet? Yeah, Tibet, yep. But so they'll take taiko drums, the throat singing and electric guitars and make music that you probably could play on American radio and people might think it's cool. Um, that's basically what I'm imagining. Um, I've actually tracked down various things where, you know, it's somebody who's using the Chinese harp, the big long one, but they're playing, you know, Enter the Sandman on it. Um, it's taking very eclectic musical instruments and then infusing it with rock music. So you have the electric guitar and the driving beat, but we're using instruments from all over Elfholm, which aren't the same as what we're used to. Very, very fun, very cool. So, um, okay, so the war. So let's maybe just, uh, the, the state of the war uh, is, uh, what's the state of the war when, when book five opens up here? Um, during the earlier books, um, Winwolf, who's the Viceroy and basically the head of the Wind Clan, let's back up a little bit more. The Wind Clan used to be the only ones in Pittsburgh because they had been basically doing the groundbreaking of this part of the world before Pittsburgh showed up. So when Pittsburgh showed up, they were the only ones there and they became basically point of contact and had a kind of a um, monopoly on Pittsburgh. But when the war breaks out, 
um, the Viceroy Winwolf basically says, I can't fight this alone. So she contacts the queen and the queen turns to the other clans and says, okay, you need to send in people. You'll be paid for helping out so that Winwolf can actually keep claim because the whole protected and protecting means that if he's not protecting the area, it's no longer his. But if he pays somebody to protect it, then he's still protecting it. So the Stone Clan comes in as mercenaries, but they're very, anti, um, very against the, the old war, clan wars is still going on. And then because their skin clans embed in, in the Stone Clan, the Stone Clan had picked out three of the most horrible people to send. Uh, so you've got the mad guy who had been tortured till his mind broke, um, Windwolf's ex, um, who now is doing the, well, if I can get rid of his new wife, maybe I can get him back. Um, let me see if I can kill her. And this lunatic, who's actually a cousin of Windwolf's, um, via various um, nobility um, alliance marriages. Uh, so that does not go well, well in the early books. So then the fire clan has moved in in force. So you've got several thousand of the Royal Marines, which are basically normal elves, um, but these are the war horses of the race because they were genetically modified by this skin clan to be taller, stronger, faster, um, enjoy fighting kind. And the Marines are, are there in thousands. And they decided that they were going to go out. In an earlier book, they had found out there were camps out in the forest with thousands and thousands of Oni. And they're like, let's just go wipe out these camps. So the start of the book is most of the elves are deep in the forest going to go fight these camps. And everybody else is back in town um, waiting to find out what happened. And yeah. that's the start of Harbinger. Yeah. And the, uh, the Royal Marines, uh, their uniform is reminiscent of British redcoats, right? Yeah. So that's, that's always these big redcoats, uh, uh, fantastic. And, the own, and there are Oni camps and they're out there and they're moving them around and they're kind of uh, using guerrilla warfare uh, techniques, right? Hiding, yeah. changing our camp frequently. And they also have what they call whores which are basically massive, uncontrollable, um, horrific monsters. Um, one of them is basically um, a giant scorpion that feeds on fire magic, unfortunately. And- um, Fortunately for the Marines. <laughs> yes. And um, has, you know, is the size of a house and, has multiple attacks 
um, and also emits a sound that is deafening um, for hundreds of meters. So it's yeah. not a fun thing to be fighting out in the woods. Yeah. So it's the, it, they're, they're kaiju, basically. Yeah. They only have, they're not domesticated, but they have with wild kaiju they're going to unleash on. Yeah, on they have multiple kaiju. So, yeah. So I love this. I connect back to early comments. So just what a fantastic uh, ensemble of elements, you know, uh, uh, all of this makes it synthetic. hard to handle. <laughs> uh, well, you're 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 you wouldn't know it from reading it. It's it's uh, it's uh, it's delightful. Um, now there is a resistance, right? They call themselves the resistance. They say, well, well, we like we like the resistance because of the French Revolution associations. Well, it's the militia, but no. um, it's the idea basically comes from one of the people that very early on trips over the fact that there's Oni um, before even some of the main characters in the first book realize it. Um, they basically have it dumped in their lap that there is an entire army hide, hidden within um, Pittsburgh and there will be a war and it happens to be their television production crew. And um, one of them is a war correspondent, so they're very familiar with how guerrilla warfare goes on. And one of them is just an egotistical maniac who's a biologist or naturalist, if you want to say, who uh, sets people on fires and blows things up. And then we've got the producer who is um, Half her family were moonshiners back in the day, and the other half were all Marines. So she decides that what they're going to do is start up a militia, but they're going to keep it quiet from the Oni because they don't know who in town can be trusted. Because the Oni have magic that can they can appear as human. So it's like anybody could be a mole. So let's keep this all secret. So um, they basically turn to the Pittsburghers who are kind of wild and wooly because the ones that stayed were the ones who could deal with the fact that you might wake up to a spider the size of a terrier or a willow tree walking through your backyard trying to eat you or dinosaurs roaming through. They're wild and wooly bunch so they all kind of grabbed hold of this idea of the militia but yeah. then they kind of went off and decided they're the french resistance and they have to yeah. be all clever and tricky tricky yeah yeah one of their i'm not sure he's a leader but hal rogers is at least an inspiring figure to them right who had been yeah. in, uh, he's kind of the leader head kind of a yeah he had been uh, he had had a TV show Pittsburgh Backyard and Garden is that right but then uh, uh, what's what's the name of his new show it's something about monsters monsters in our midst that's right monsters in our and so you see his followers have these blue boonie hats the kind of soft uh, uh, and are uh, I mean I guess I guess he's it, with the with the show he's informing the militia and educating them 
uh, and uh, and they also use um, well, this is maybe a little tiny spoiler, but it's fun for me. They they use rock. They're they like call they, the the pirate radio station uh, oh. sends out, which I guess is basically abandoned when Pittsburgh starts uh, yeah. shifting between worlds, and so the you know the 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 DJs use it to to send uh, you know commands uh, time to muster go to point A whatever things like that. Yeah, I was living in Pittsburgh when I wrote the first book, and then I moved to Boston, and that didn't inform the books so much. But then I moved to Hawaii, and that huge isolation factor. Oh, interesting. Was very eye-opening um things like you know we've got mcdonald's and burger king and that's it um no wendy's no arby's um you just don't have it and occasionally it's yes we did have it it didn't do well it's now another chinese joint um <laughs> And then, then even that, like we have Chinese out the ear, um, Vietnamese, Korean, but we really don't have Indian. Um, and the words kind of get blended. Like we don't call it soy sauce, we call it shoyu, um, which is the Japanese word for it. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of, a lot of that has seeped in to the idea of what Pittsburgh would be if it suddenly became an island um, in the middle of a forest instead of an ocean. Yeah, that's interesting. That had, uh, you know, some of the kind of aesthetic uh, influences are, are fairly straightforward, right? It's clearly some, some Japan going on. Uh, other kind of influences come out in our conversation, but I, I had not thought about that isolation point. That's really. Um, that's I, we, we had been planning to move away from Boston because it's expensive and cold and we were only there for work. And my husband had taken an early retirement and I'm a writer, so we could live anywhere. And I had health reasons why I needed someplace warm. And most places that are warm become hell on earth during the summertime yep <laughs> so we were really trying to find someplace that was warm and we ended up picking hawaii but i literally did not know anything um we had gone to japan and lived there for six weeks mm -hmm. to see whether or not we could hack that and it turned out that it's really easy to be a tourist there but mm -hmm. actually living there it's really hard and I wasn't going to be able to take it. And then I have an autistic child mm. um, and he really wouldn't be able to take it. So on the way back on the plane, they were doing a video on places you can visit active volcanoes. And I don't know why, but my husband turns to me and goes, do you want to move to Hawaii? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> I don't like it we can move back but you know yeah, yeah I wouldn't want to move to Hawaii so we land and two weeks later we put my car 
on a car carrier to send it to Hawaii. And three months later, I'm living here. And I literally did not know anything about the state because I was too busy packing to actually do any research. So there were so many, <laughs> what? I didn't realize we were sitting on the most active volcano, that there's more than one volcano. The, we're also on the largest volcano in the world, um, that there's four more volcanoes on the island and one more growing off the coast. Wow. And, uh, and when you say that, you know, Hawaii is made from volcanoes, you don't realize that every square inch of it is either lava or wood chips put down and composted down to dirt. There is nothing else. And it's just all that mind-broding kind of thing. And I'm trying to kind of grab hold of that feeling and put it into the Elf Home books. Yeah. And it doesn't help yeah. that characters keep on popping up and going, why don't you write about me? Uh, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> well, speaking of characters, we should, we should, before we wind up here, we should make sure we talk about Tinker because we haven't said that much about her. Uh, her, uh, she is genius. Um, the hover bikes that people ride around are basically her invention, right? Yes. Uh, and, and her father, uh, uh, devised the space travel technology that, that actually caused this, these, with this world swaps. Yeah. Um, uh, what else should we know about Tinker? Well, the bit, very underlying important thing was her great, great, great grandfather had been an elf who had come to earth to escape the skin clan and investigate this mysterious box full of magical devices he had discovered. And while on earth, he fathered a child and then was killed. Um, and the box was lost. And the children, the son went off to have more children and Tinker's one of the descendants of this half elf who had enough knowledge that he had um, a book filled with magical spells that would work if he had magic. And Tinker's father had this whole back history of there is another universe out there. And somehow these natural gates that used to work stopped working but we might be able to make an artificial gate back, but there might be some danger involved, which is why he put it in space. And he was working with people he thought he could trust. And it turned out that they had Oni connections and the Oni killed him and took his design and built the space gate. And they fully realized that what probably would end up happening is that they could reach elf home. So they knew all along what they were doing, but the rest of Earth really didn't know why. And they came up with this elaborate, oh yeah, ships are jumping. They're going to um, this Alpha Satori. They're setting up a colony. 
And they even set up fake messages coming back um, because they don't know what happened to the spaceships, but they disappeared. Um, and in the second book, we find out what happened to the spaceships. Um, so Tinker is basically, um, she's complicated to talk about. <laughs> she was it, basically somebody used her father's stored sperm um, to create her in order so that she could be here at this point in time in order to be the pivotal point of stopping this invasion. And she's genius. She was kind of raised feral by her grandfather who let her do anything she wanted. Uh, she's never been in a public school because uh, she basically knew it all by the time, time she was kindergarten age and she didn't see the reason to go into school and her grandfather agreed with this. So she no. basically hung out and read science books and um, took all the scrap of abandoned things around her right. and made toys out of them. But her toys were things like, you know, hover bikes and yeah so she basically grows up on like a like it's an abandoned industrial island right isn't that what it is yeah and uh and she's and she learns like even in this book book five like her her family is expanding in a couple of ways uh she's she's discovering that people she did not realize were her family are in fact her family yeah. Uh, uh, so this is this is the Dufays. There, there's a lot of secrecy kind of a, a, around their history and relations. Um, and then the other thing we've already kind of t- attended to this earlier on, but as as the opening the opening scene is basically uh, Tinker is is a- awakened by the Tengu leader uh, Jin Wong, who says, "I got two pieces of news for you. The first is there are six more of you out there." She says, six twins," which then Tinker has to try and what, 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 is, what does six twins even mean? Um, but basically, this is the earlier conversation, right? Is, is embryos that, uh, the same embryos, that, you know, one, one, one of which became Tinker, there mm. are six of them out there. And, and four of them, uh, as, as the book opens, are, are gestating. And this, these, are the, these are the Tinker twins who are projecting themselves into robot mice. Mm. Um, and so they're hyper intelligent and magically gifted, right? Yeah, yeah they're still toddlers. They're still, they're not even, they're even born, really, yeah. right? But uh, yeah. maturity wise, they're still right. toddlers of, right. I thought of this, I'm going to go do it. And it's like, no, right. damn, they're right. gone already. Right. Uh, and then the two twins, who, as you say, would be born in 2021, so they're yeah. out there somewhere right now, um, who are nine years old. Uh, yeah. So, uh, um, so that's one piece of news that uh, that that uh, Tinker gets. And the other one is, hey, there are 12 dragon eggs out there. Uh, magical devices that Dubai had had and was trying to figure out. Um, they had been on Earth, and in the Wood Sprites book, um, they were discovered and transported back to Earth, um, back to Elf home, 
Um, and I have a whole section. There's a short story, Monsters in Our Mints, which will be out on the Bain website shortly. Oh, and um, that will be the whole Jane tracking the box, um, which is briefly mentioned here and there. Um, but there's a whole novella. I can't write short. Uh, <laughs> explaining um, where it came and where it went and, and tracking it, so. Very cool. And these devices are in the hands of the Oni. Yeah, at the start of Harbinger. At the start of Harbinger. So, um, yeah, so that's, so I feel like that's a pretty good, like we haven't given away any plot really, right? <laughs> So, and we haven't even touched on all the characters. I mean, Jane just came up a minute ago for the first yeah. time. She's a major point of view character. We haven't talked about oil can. There's there's a lot out there still. Yeah. Um, but uh, but we're coming up on 45 minutes or so here. So it, is there anything else? What else would you like to say to people about the series or or about the book or about anything? Well, first off, the question people keep on asking is, what order do things oh. go? And chronologically, Wood Sprites is actually first, but um, it's better if you write, read Tinker and Wood Wolf, Wolf Who Rolls and um, Elf Home before you read um, Wood Sprite, because it kind of spoils some of the surprise of the other books. Mm. And then after those four books, um, Project Elf Home is a collection of short stories. And some of the short stories actually fall time-wise before the start of Tinker. Um, but most of them are in that window of, um, after Wolf Who Rolls, before Elf Home. But you know, they all kind of dovetail in. But at the same time, the short stories are fairly standalone. Um, you could read them and anything you needed to know about Elf Home was, is inserted. Mm -hmm. so, um, so if someone wanted just a little bite-sized taste, that yeah. might be a good place to start. Yeah. and. Uh, it, it's it's one of those things where I I like exploring all the different facets of the world. So there's a lot of characters who just kind of cropped up, and they don't quite fit in perfectly. Like Law, Law is kind of like the total random one, um, where she her first story is the night of. Tinker's starting novel. <laughs> and then her last story um, that she had was at the end of Elf Home to explain certain things that happened, but basically to show where everybody was at. Mm -hmm. um, it was to catch everybody up to speed so that they would all be at the same point when Harbinger started. Mm -hmm. And then I sat down the right harbinger and realized that Jane was still back in June. So I wrote this novella and um, it was on my patron for two years. And when 
they asked me, Bain asked me, do you have something we can publish to? Um, connection with the book. Yeah, with connection with the book or advertise the book. I was like, well, this is kind of necessary information to understand what Jane keeps on talking about. Yeah. Um, so that'll be free on the Bain website then, right? Yes. Yeah. So there you go. If you if you're if you're curious but but hesitant or being careful with your pennies, there's a free there's a free sample on the Bain website. You could go grab yeah. probably by the time this interview. All Bain's stories are free on the website. Yeah. Um, because I had done the one as promotion for Wood Sprite, I think, mm -hmm. or Elf Home, one of the two. And um, it was one of those, can you write a short story for the website? And, and the next thing I go, there's a novella. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I really have a hard time writing short. Um, it all tends to be very long. Um, Neil, Neil Stevenson says the same thing about himself. So you're in good company. Yep. And uh, there is another book after Harbinger that I'm working on. Oh, excellent. Um, and there will be another Black Wolves book that I'm also working on whenever I get really sick of Elfhome. Um, I go <laughs> off and play with the werewolves. Um, so. There are things coming out, but this new book is the new one I should be talking about. Very cool. Fantastic. Well, uh, once again, the book is Harbinger, uh, out now from Bain Books in hardcover and ebook. Uh, Wen Spencer, thanks very much for taking uh, time. It's uh, going to be an audio book, too. And audio book, too. You know what? I should actually say that. I've got my little transcript, and I never say audio, uh, but. Uh, at this point, I think most Bain books come out on audio, so I'm gonna I'm gonna make that change. I don't know the details uh, about it, but I had fans asking, so I asked Bain, and Bain's like, "Yes, yes, it will be an audio book." So yeah. um, I always leave all that stuff to them. So um, yeah, I do too. <laughs> Fantastic, Wen. Thank you very much. Thank you. And I had a great time, so thanks for having me. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony worlds Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a cobra. Room C-662 was his first indication that perhaps he'd jumped to the wrong conclusion. Instead of the battalion-sized auditorium he'd expected, the room was barely adequate to handle the 40-odd men already seated there. 
Two men in red and black diamond-patterned tunics faced the group from a low dais. As Johnny slipped into a vacant chair, the younger of them caught Johnny's eye. Name? Johnny Moroser, Johnny told him, glancing quickly at the wall clock. But it was still only 1528, and the other merely nodded and made a notation on a comm board on his lap. Looking furtively around the room, Johnny spent the next two minutes listening to his heartbeat and letting his imagination have free reign. Exactly at 1530, the older of the uniformed men stood up. "'Good afternoon, gentlemen,' he nodded. "'I'm C-2 Rand Mendro, Cobra Unit Commander, and I'd like to welcome you to Asgard. We build men and women into soldiers here, as well as flyers, sailors, star forcers, and a few other specialties. Here in Freyr Complex, we're exclusively soldiers, and you, 45, have had the honor of being chosen for the newest and, in my opinion, most elite force the Dominion has to offer.' If you want to join, he looked around, his eyes seeming to touch each of them in turn. If you do, you'll draw the most dangerous assignment we've got, to go to troft-occupied worlds and engage the enemy in a guerrilla war. He paused, and Johnny felt his stomach curling into a knot. An elite unit, as he'd wanted, and the chance to help civilian populations, as he'd also wanted. But to be dropped in where the troughts already had control sounded a lot more like suicide than service. From the faint stirrings around the room, he gathered his reaction wasn't unique. Of course, Mendro continued, we aren't exactly talking about space shooting you in with a laser rifle in one hand and a radio in the other. If you choose to join up, you'll receive some of the most extensive training and the absolute top-of-the-line weaponry available. He gestured to the man seated beside him. C-3 Shri Bai will be the chief training instructor for this unit. He'll now demonstrate a little of what you as Cobras will be able to do. Bai laid his comm board beside his chair and started to stand up. And halfway through the motion, he shot toward the ceiling. Caught by surprise, Johnny saw only the blur as Bai leaped. But the twin thunderclaps from above and behind him were the gut-wrenching signs of a rocket-assisted flight gone horribly bad. He spun around in his seat, bracing for the sight of Bai's broken body. Bai was standing calmly by the door, a hint of a smile on his face as he looked around at what must have been some pretty stunned expressions. "'I'm sure all of you know,' he said, "'that using either a lift-pack or exoskeleton muscle enhancers would be foolhardy in such a confined room, hmm?' So watch again. His knees bent a few degrees, and with the same thump-thump, he was back on the dais. All right, he said. Who saw what I did? Silence. And then a hand went tentatively up. You bounced off the ceiling, I think, the recruit said, a bit uncertainly. Um, your shoulders took the impact? In other words, you didn't really see, Bai nodded. I actually... Flipped halfway over on the way up, took the impact with my feet, and continued around to be upright when I landed. Johnny's mouth felt a little dry. The ceiling was no more than five meters up. To have done that much maneuvering in that small a space. The point, aside from the power and precision of the jump itself, Mendro said, is that even you, who knew what was going to happen, couldn't follow Bai's movement. Consider how it would work against a room full of troughts who weren't expecting it. Next, 
He broke off as the door opened and one more recruit came in. Viljo? Bai asked, retrieving the comm board at his feet. Yes, sir, the newcomer nodded. Sorry I'm late, sir. The registration people were running slow. Oh? Bai waved the comm board. Says here you went through the line at 14.50. That's, uh, let's see, 17 minutes before Moreau, who got here seven minutes earlier than you did. Hmm? Viljo turned a bright red. I guess maybe I got a little lost, sir. With all the signs posted around the complex, not to mention all the regular army personnel wandering around, hmm? Viljo was beginning to look like a hunted animal. I... I stopped to look at the exhibits in the entry corridor, sir. I thought this room was closer than it was. I see. Bai gave him a long, chilly look. Punctuality, Viljo, is a mark of a good soldier. And if you plan to be a cobra, it's going to be an absolute necessity. But even more important are honesty and integrity in front of your teammates. Specifically, it means that when you cross-cop, you damn well better try not to push the blame onto someone else. Got that? Yes, sir. All right. Now come up here. I need an assistant for this next demonstration. That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Wynn Spencer for sitting down with DJ Butler today. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirerod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars.